Today we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King, and I have to admit that monarchy has been on my mind more than usual lately, because there is a new season of The Crown. <laughs> if you don't know this show, it's a bio, bio show on the life of Queen Elizabeth II, and Rahel and I have been obsessed with each season. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but in the third season, we reach the late 1960s, and the Cultural Revolution is afoot in Britain, and people are beginning to question whether they even need kings and queens. And it's kind of a good question. We Americans in 1776 gave a resounding thanks but no thanks to the question of having a king. And as modern people, we might be wondering, why is it? that we use this kind of ancient metaphor for Christ still and reserve a whole Sunday for Christ the King. But this feast doesn't actually hail from ye olde days. This is not a feast of antiquity. This didn't happen in the medieval church. The Renaissance church didn't have a feast of Christ the King. This feast was actually instituted in 1925. 25 was a time of tremendous upheaval in Europe. An entire generation of young Brits and Austro-Hungarians and French and Russians and Turks had been wiped out, as well as about 100,000 Americans. Young soldiers went into the war planning to sort of stand in these even ranks across from each other and either joust or fight with swords or maybe all fire guns at the same time, and instead they spent years and years in the trenches facing poisonous gases with this new invention of aerial bombardment coming down from the sky. And after a brief and hopeful lull in the horror, 1924 appeared as this pivotal year in which two men of previously unimaginable cruelty, Hitler and Stalin, came to power in Germany and Russia. So when Pope Pius XI declared the Feast of Christ the King in 1925, he pleaded with the world, saying, Oh, what happiness would be ours! if all individuals and families and nations would but let themselves be governed by Christ, then peace with all its blessings would be restored. Men will sheathe their swords and lay down their arms when all freely acknowledge and obey the authority of Christ. It was not a romantic, chivalrous idea of kingship. This feast sprang out of the church witnessing worldly power spinning wildly out of control. And this was a time long before ecumenism and the liturgical movement was uniting Roman Catholics and Protestants, but soon enough this holiday was taken up by Anglicans and Lutherans and Methodists. It was so clear that following the Prince of Peace was a very good idea. In today's Gospel, we see the first declaration of Christ the King. The soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. They did all this in mockery of Christ, this ludicrous idea that this guy could actually be a king when he is suffering like this, when he is defeated roundly, when the Romans have won the day. But how could they have actually known who he was? How could they have possibly wrapped their heads around the fact that this guy indeed was the king of kings and lord of lords? And what's more, as St. Paul says in today's 
passage from Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him, says Paul. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so the thief on the left in mockery asks, if you really are the source of all power and might, why don't you save yourself? And for that matter, also me. And it's a good question. If you are the king of everything, why not reign in splendor and power? Why suffer? So the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, in thinking about this, came up with a sort of answer. He said, once upon a time, there was another king who was all-powerful, omnipotent. He had all the power in the country. He could take any random citizen and elevate them to the level of a duke or throw them in jail forever or kill them. He could do whatever he wanted. And he would go through every single city and town and village in his country on a three-year rotation and he would check them out, make sure they're acting right. And if he really liked the look of your village, maybe he would give you a new Coliseum or Disney World or something fantastic. And if he really didn't like the look of your village, he might just burn it down just to spite you. And so this was a day of great fear and trembling for everybody involved. So there was a little tiny village. They hadn't had their visitation in three years. They got sent a letter saying, you know, March 13th, you're on the schedule, the king will be coming through. So they rush to Home Depot, they buy all the whitewash they can, they're buying petunias, they're festooning, you know, streetlights, garlands, they're doing the whole nine yards, repaving the roads, everything's looking really nice. So the day of the king's visit comes, everybody's terrified. And they're all there, they're out watching for the coach. Everybody's standing in front of their houses and businesses, they're lining the main street. And they hear the rumbling from far off. They see great clouds of dust. And they see all these coaches coming. And they're surrounded by knights. And there are all sorts of outriders and retainers and so forth coming with the king. And it, it starts coming through the village. And they're going 90 miles an hour. And they see the king kind of peeking out the, the windows. Everyone's kneeling down by the side of the road. And he's looking right. And he's looking left. And they're all, you know, he's passing by pretty quickly. They're thinking, okay, we're going to be spared this year. And suddenly he says, stop. And everything comes to this screeching halt. And everybody thinks, Uh Uh-oh. And the king has seen, he's a single guy, single king, he has seen the most beautiful maiden he has ever seen in his life. And he thinks, okay, this is it. Finally, I'm going to get hitched. This is the lady for me. And he starts to open the door of his carriage, but then he realizes something. He's a major problem. If he gets out of the carriage and goes and talks to her, and says, you know, will you be my wife? Do you want to go on a date? Like, let's check out a movie sometime. Obviously, she's going to say yes, because she's either terrified that if she says no, she's going to burn down her whole village and family and state and everything, or if she says yes, she's excited that she's going to become the wielder of this great power with him, that she's going to get unlimited gift cards. I don't, know what, I don't know what queens get, but all sorts of fabulous things that queens get, she will have. <clears throat> But there's no way that he can approach her and have her love him. She can either fear him or be obedient to him. But there's no way he can win her love. So he closes the coach door and says, drive on. He gives up. So they rumble off to the palace. And that night he is just thinking what a terrible situation he's in. 
He's never so much regretted becoming a king. And he's racking his brain. Is there anything I can do? And finally, he seizes upon this perfect bright idea. And he takes off his ermine cloak and he lays it on the bed. And he takes off his gold crown and he takes off his golden sword. And he goes down to the basement and he rummages around and finds some old gunny sacks. And he puts on these, these kind of awful clothes. And he kind of soots himself up with some stuff from the boiler. And that night, carrying no money and no extra bread and no dagger, he leaves the palace to walk back to this village so that he can knock on her father's farmhouse door and seek refuge as a homeless person, that he might try and actually win her love. And this is why, says Kierkegaard, Christ doesn't come reigning in power and glory and splendor and terror and might, because doing that, he could certainly win our obedience, he could certainly cause our fear, because he could never actually gain our love. And it's only coming in this weakness, and this vulnerability that we can actually have a chance to not fear him or obey him, but to love him. And that's all that Christ wants from us. He doesn't want sycophantic obedience. He doesn't want fear. He wants love. Because it's only through love that we are saved. For all the other kings of the earth, their own power and their majesty and their grandeur That's the whole point. That's everything. But for the one true king, lifting each of us to grandeur, lifting each of us to infinite joy, lifting each of us to a consciousness of how fully loved we are is the only point. So since the beginning of the church, the central act of Christian worship, the holiest thing that we do has been the Eucharist, the reception of the body and blood of Christ. And this Greek word, Eucharist, it doesn't mean communion, it doesn't mean holy table, it doesn't mean the mass. What it means, Eucharist, in Greek just means thanksgiving. It's a central act of thanksgiving. Receiving the love of God, knowing the joy of God, the peace of God, it doesn't start with obedience or with fear. It starts with giving thanks. So this Thursday, we as a nation will pause to give thanks to God for all that he has blessed us with. But this is not something that we do for God's benefit or so that God doesn't get mad at us. This is not like a sort of holy shout out that we give to God. It's not like you're accepting your Oscar and you're like, oh, I almost forgot to thank my manager. Thanks, Eddie. Instead, giving thanks to God is something that we do for ourselves. When we're thankful when we're worshipful, when we see everything in our lives and even our life itself as a gift given directly from him to each of us, we can start to comprehend his love. And it's only when we start to realize the depth of his love for each one of us that we can start to respond in kind, that his love starts to call forth love from us. And it's through our thanksgiving that we begin to love God, And through that love of God, love his whole creation and our neighbors as ourselves. So it's one thing just to say thanks. If a waiter poured me a glass of water, I would be remiss in not saying thank you. But to give something in thanksgiving with deep gratitude is an entirely other matter. So in Anthony Trollope's The Small House at Allingdon, young Johnny Eames saves this nobleman's life. And... 
He thinks, okay, I did him a good turn. The nobleman says thank you, but then starts giving him gifts and becomes his patron, becomes his protector, gives him his, his own watch that he's worn for all these years. He makes this real act of thanksgiving to this young man that changes both of their lives. And it's one thing to say thanks, but another to make a sacrifice that makes that thanksgiving real to yourself. So today is our church thanksgiving. It's our pledge in gathering in which we place our 2020 pledges, our own thank offerings to God in the collection plate. And these pledges make up our 2020 budget. Without them, there would be no electricity and no staff and no building, basically no grace. But that's actually a secondary purpose of our pledges. That's kind of a benefit of our pledges. The primary purpose of my pledge is just to give real thanks to God. My pledge is in reality just a fraction of my income, but it's a big enough percentage that it feels a little crazy and a little daunting to part with it each year. It's the symbol of everything that I have and everything that I am. And it's a reminder to myself each week that all that I have and all that I am belong to God. So I hope you'll join me in making your 2020 Pledge to Grace in this recognition that all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Amen.